outside Waco, Texas. A heavily armed compound, a religious cult, their leader claiming to be Jesus Christ. Well, howdy, y'all. Welcome back to the Texas Talking Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Hobrook O'Dowd. Welcome to Episode 5. I want to apologize for my delay in posting this episode. We should have posted back around June 15th, but as fate would have it, my first granddaughter was born, and well, I was kind of busy. But I'm glad to be back with you today to bring you the podcast all about Texas. In this episode, we're going to go back in time to 1993, Waco, Texas where we will find the agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, better known as the ATF, and later agents from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, tangling with a group known now as the Branch Davidians and their leader, Dave. What began with the ATF agents serving an arrest warrant on Koresh at the Mount Carmel location, approximately 13 miles northeast of Waco, ended 51 days later with fire destroying the Mount Carmel structure and killing all 80 occupants inside. It was the most controversial clash between U.S. law enforcement agents and American citizens to date. But first, Let me tell you a little bit about the Texas Talking Podcast. As a native Texan, I wanted to bring you a podcast all about Texas. So in each episode, I will bring you stories, information, interviews about the history, culture, legend, mystique that is Texas. While Texas is known for its hot weather, and it is almost July and it is hot, barbecue, cowboy hats, and its large size, what else do you know about Texas? Well, if you're a Texan, a Texan at, well, if you're a Texan, a Texan at heart, or just a curious bypasser who, who would like to know more about the Lone Star State, then you're in the right place. No topic is off limits, as this podcast will explore everything from Texas-style cuisine, attractions, places to visit, historical sites and figures, as well as topics suggested by you, my audience. So head on over to our Facebook page, the Texas Talking Podcast uh, Facebook page, and give me some ideas for future shows. And while you're at it, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, And we're also now on Apple Podcasts. You can also go to our website, texastalkin.com. That's Texas, no space, T-A-L-K-I-N.com to find out more about the show. I for help and support to keep this show going. I hope that you will join us every two weeks for new episodes. Like us on Facebook and give us some five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, y'all. really helps to get me up in the known uh, podcast. So please give us some five-star reviews. 
And also, you can support us on Patreon so that we can remain on the air commercial free. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Texas Talkin'. And then just click Become a Patron. You can support the podcast each month for as little as a dollar per month. That's a dollar. Come on. You spend more than that at Starbucks on coffee or at Whataburger on a burger. So I want to thank everyone that has supported me, all of my, and I really want to encourage those of you that are listening to please support the podcast so I can remain on the air commercial free. So big hat off to Emma F., Richard H., Thomas G., Richard O., and Jared O. for supporting the show. Now, let The events that occurred in Waco, Texas in 1993, when federal agents began their final siege on Mount Carmel, is remembered by many Texans as a tragedy that could have, should have been prevented. But what happened on that fateful day of April 19, 1993? What were the events that led up to the final confrontation And what have we learned that can prevent the same thing from happening again? First, let me provide you with a little history lesson on the community of Waco. Waco is the county seat of McLennan County in North Central Texas. Today, Waco is best known for its ties to the popular TV show, Fixer Upper, in which hometown celebrities Chip and Joanna Gaines flip house hometown celebrities Chip and Joanna Gaines flip houses. Waco is about an hour and a half from Dallas or Austin, Texas, and it is also home to the famous Baylor Bears, Baylor University, and the Dr. Pepper Museum. The software drink was first bottled in Waco by uh, a native Texan, Charles Alderton. He was a young pharmacist and he worked at the uh, Morrison's Old Corner Drugstore in Waco. And according to the Dr. Pepper Museum website, which I will include a link to on my website, texastalking.com, Alderton spent most of his time mixing up medicine for for the people of Waco. But in his spare time, he liked to serve carbonated drinks, as many pharmacists did, at his soda fountain. But more on that topic in a future podcast. Waco also lies on the Brazos River River, and was founded in 1841 on the site of the Waco, spelled in Spanish H-U-E-C-O, and pronounced Waco Indian Village near a Texas Ranger Fort in the farming and plantation area that is now Waco, Texas. The history of the Branch Davidians began in Waco in 1935 with Victor Hudoff. Hudoff was a Bulgarian immigrant and a seven-day Adventist living in Southern California. And he had some reform ideas for the Seventh-day Adventist church. He had broken from the Adventist church after presenting his views to the elders. And they were kind of contrary to the church's basic teaching. He and 37 of his followers moved two miles from Waco to establish the Mount Carmel Center. 
His group became known as the Davidians. When Hudif died in 1955, his wife Florence took over the leadership of the group. Now this is important to understand who David Koresh is and how all of this came about with the FBI. Florence was convinced that there was an apocalyptic event about to occur. Uh, in fact, she predicted that it would occur, occur in 1959. Uh, and this apocalyptic event would restore the uh, kingdom of David of Israel. So she and her council began gathering hundreds of their faithful followers at the Mount Carmel Center. For the fulfillment of this prophecy uh, is written in Ezekiel 9. When the anticipated apocalypse did not occur, many in the group were disappointed. And this allowed for member Benjamin Roden to take control of Mount Carmel and form another group which he called the Branch Davidians. When Benjamin Roden died in 1978, he was succeeded by his wife, Lois Roden. But some of the Branch Davidian members were torn between their allegiance to Lois or to Benjamin and Lois's son, George. George took over as leader of the group after his mother died but his reign was short-lived as less than a year after becoming the Branch Davidian leader, Vernon Howe rose to become the group that supported Lois. Howe had come to the community in 1981 while Lois Roden was still alive and according to sources he had engaged in an affair with Lois who was in her late 60s while Howe was in his late 20s when the affair began. He wanted to have children with Lois, who, according to him, would become the Chosen Ones. Of course, this started a power struggle between George Roden, Lois's son, and Vernon Howe. It got pretty messy, something you can read all about online in the Wikipedia article on the Branch Davidians. To make a long story short, Howe and a few of his followers raided Mount Carmel equipped with semi-automatic rifles and an ensuing court case occurred rifles and an ensuing court case occurred over the raid. Eventually, uh, Howe acquired the position of spiritual leader from Roden and Howe changed his name to David Koresh. Why David Koresh? Well, it has been suggested that he wanted to create biblical ties to King David and Cyrus the Great. Koresh is the Hebrew version of the name Cyrus. Koresh set out to create a new lineage of world leaders, a practice that would later serve as the basis of the child abuse allegations that the ATF claimed contributed to the siege on Mount Carmel. Koresh's teachings centered around Revelations 5.2. He identified himself too. He identified himself as being the lamb mentioned in the passage that most Christians 
believed symbolizes Jesus Christ. But Koresh never claimed to be Christ. Instead, he suggested the Lamb would come before Christ and pave the way for the second coming of Christ. Koresh encouraged his followers to study the seven seals, which is in Revelations. He uh, preferred that his followers be called students of the seven seals and not the Branch Davidians. But when the 1993 Waco siege and standoff occurred, the media would refer to David Koresh and his followers as the Branch Davidians. Sometimes the Koreshians, but I never heard that term, but I did find it um, in my research. So they were only partially correct. The cult actually called or known as the Branch Davidians is an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They broke off from the church and moved out here from Los Angeles back in 1935. But despite the longevity of the cult in and around the Waco area, very few Waco residents that we spoke with had ever even heard of this cult before today. Now, most of the world did not know who David Koresh was, Didn't probably didn't even know he existed, before the ATF attempted to execute a search warrant on him at Mount Carmel on Sunday morning, February 23rd, 1993. But some of the residents of Waco did know about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. One of those was Sheriff Jack Harwell. Koresh first came to the attention of Sheriff Harwell in 1987 when Koresh, then named Hal, and seven of his armed companions tried to get into Mount Carmel to take control of the group and the compound away from George Roden, as I previously mentioned. Sheriff Harwell responded to the gunfight that ensued between Koresh and Roden and convinced Koresh to stop shooting and surrender. In a 1990 stop shooting and surrender, in a 1995 interview for ABC's Frontline, Sheriff Harwell described Koresh and the group at Mount Carmel as always courteous and kind of nice people. He said that they invited him and some of his deputies out to the property to fish, or he said that they were just invited to come out and visit. The way they kind of looked at the property, though, according to Harwell, was it was kind of like their own country. In other words, they really protected their property. Well, you had a bunch of women, children, elderly people. They were all good, good people. They had different beliefs from others, uh, different beliefs than I have. Uh, maybe different beliefs than you have in their way of life and especially in their religious uh, beliefs but basically they were good people i was around them quite a lot they were always nice mannerly they minded their own business they, they were never overbearing they were always clean and courteous i liked them others in waco um, had a little bit more sinister view of Koresh and his group. Now, not everyone, because some people actually describe them as, again, nice people kept to themselves. But in February of 1993, the Waco uh, Tribune Herald newspaper 
started publishing a series of articles titled The Sinful Messiah, written by Mark uh, England and Darlene McCormick. And they were reporting that David Koresh had physically abused children at, Mark, at Mount Carmel and had committed statutory rape by taking multiple underage brides. The paper claimed that Koresh had announced that he was entitled to at least 140 wives and that he was entitled to claim any of the women in the group as his, that he had fathered at least a dozen children and some of the mothers became brides and some of the mothers became brides as young as 12 or 13 years old. Now, many of these claims were uh, thought to be true, and many of these claims uh, were proven. And even uh, some of the members of the Branch Davidian Compound uh, did admit that some of this did happen. Some of it, however, may have been somewhat exaggerated. In addition to allegations conduct, Koresh and his followers were also suspected of stockpiling illegal, we illegal weapons. A fact that had been reported to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, in May of 1992 by Chief Deputy Daniel Weidenberg of McLennan County Sheriff's Office. Um, he said, the, the uh, deputy said, that a local UPS driver had reported delivering a package to the Brant's Davidian residence, and the package fell open, and he noticed that it contained uh, an abundance of firearms, grenade casings, and gunpowder. And he reported this to um, the sheriff's office, and they reported this to the ATF. So the ATF began surveillance on Koresh in July of um, July 30th, I believe, 1992, after um, they had interviewed a local gun dealer, Henry McMahon. Uh, McMahon. McMahon had sold guns to Koresh and his group, uh, but he found gun shows and they sold these guns and that's how they supported their church. One of the ATF agents, though, David Aguilera, approached Sheriff Hardwell about Koresh and the alleged arm stockpile. Harwell told the agents that they should just go out and talk to them, meaning the Branch Davidians, and said, just, you know, what's wrong with notifying them? Just let them know that you want to come out, you want to talk to them, you want to see their guns. But instead of doing this, the ATF began surveilling uh, the Branch Davidian compound from a house across the road. And they did this for several months before um, they, they finally executed a warrant. It was also reported that the gun dealer, Henry McMahon, had also tried to talk the ATF into talking to Koresh on the phone. And that according to McMahon, Koresh had even offered to let the ATF, according to McMahon, Koresh had even offered to let the ATF inspect the Branch Davidians' weapons and show them the paperwork to prove that everything was legal and on the up and up. But Aguilera declined to do this. Whatever happened that summer, on February 25, 1993, the ATF used an affidavit filed by David Aguilera to obtain a warrant that led to the Waco siege. And according to an article published by Eric Hissenson in um, a newspaper called Insight on the News, the ATF had planned their raid for Monday, March 1st, 1993, 
with the code name Showtime. Now, if you've watched the uh, movie Waco, or it's actually a miniseries, on Netflix, uh, they use the Showtime reference quite a lot. But they had to move their rate up in 1993 in response to the Waco Tribune Herald's uh, series that the Sinful Messiah series of articles. Now that series of articles was not something that the ATF wanted published. Um, in fact, the ATF, ATF had tried to prevent the newspaper from publishing it. Beginning around February 1st, ATF agents had had three meetings with the, um, the uh, staff at the uh, Tribune Herald regarding delaying the publication of the Sinful Messiah series. But according to a Department of Treasury report on the um, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms investigation, the ATF preferred to, um, the ATF was unable to convince them to stop and, and not run this article. Also, that uh, invest investigation also said that the ATF really wanted to try to arrest Koresh outside of Mount Carmel, but it was something that the ATF planners uh, had been gathering information on, and they thought that Koresh rarely left the compound. Now, uh, according to the planners, they received inaccurate information because there were plenty of people in Waco, local uh, people to Waco, that said that um, members of the Branch Davidians, including David Koresh, attended lots of local events, frequented local businesses, uh, had cordial relations with Locals, including attending gun shows, uh, which again was how they uh, reportedly had uh, supported their church. church. Whatever the case, on February 28, 1993, a Sunday morning, the ATF commander ordered the warrant be served on David Koresh and the residents of Mount Carmel. Here is reporter Alan Himberger live from Mount Carmel on that fateful day, reporting with eyewitness shoes. The siege began Sunday morning when ATF agents went to the Branch Davidian compound near Waco to arrest cult leader David Koresh on weapons charges. Before the shooting was over, at least six people, four ATF agents and two cult members lay dead. So the residents of Mount Carmel were reportedly attending their Sunday morning worship services when ATF agents arrived around 9.45 a.m., that morning in a convoy of civilian vehicles containing uniformed personnel in SWAT-style technical gear. Several of the male followers began arming themselves and took defensive positions inside of Mount Carmel when they heard the agent's vehicles arrive. What the ATF had kind of hoped would be a surprise execution of the arrest warrant on Koresh actually came as no surprise at all. Any advantage or any surprise was lost when a reporter, KWTX TV reporter, uh, had uh, tipped off a U.S. postal mail carrier about the raid, asking for postal mail carrier about the raid, asking for directions. And this guy, this U.S. Postal Service mail carrier, just happened to be Koresh's brother-in-law. So once he knew that the raid was coming, he went straight to Mount Carmel and told everyone. Interrupted their service, and that's kind of what prompted uh, some of the followers to take arms. Now, the women and children were told to take cover in their rooms. 
and Koresh told all of his followers that he was going to go outside and try to speak to the agents. Now, what happened next has been greatly debated. ATF agents stated that they heard shots coming from within the compound, prompting them to shoot into the compound, while the Branch Davidian survivors claim that the first shots came from the ATF agents outside. We do know that uh, there were some dogs outside uh, that belonged to the Branch Davidians, and those dogs were shot, possible that ATF agents maybe had a misfire of guns or were shooting the dogs so that they could get in better position around the uh, Branch Davidian compound. And that's what the Davidians heard. And then, of course, the Davidians started shooting. Who knows? Whatever the reason, a firefight ensued between ATF agents and several of the armed Branch Davidians. In all, four ATF agents, Steve Willis, Robert Williams, Todd McKeehan and Conway Charles LeBleu were killed during the firefight, along, along with 16 other officers being injured. Five Branch Davidians were killed in the raid. Winston Blake, Peter Gent, Peter Hipsman, Perry Jones, and J. Dean Wendell. Nearly six hours after the 11.30 a.m. ceasefire, Michael Schroeder, was shot dead by ATF agents who allegedly fired a, uh, at Schroeder when he was attempting to re-enter the compound. During the first shots, Koresh was wounded, shot in the hand and stomach. In a minute of the raid starting, Branch Davidian Wayne Martin called the sheriff's office pleading for them to stop shooting. Martin asked for a ceasefire. And there are audio tapes recording Martin saying, Here they come again. That's them shooting. That's not us. Sheriff Lieutenant, uh, Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department contacted the ATF and, and negotiated a ceasefire. The bloodiest... Hello? Is this Wayne Martin? I hear gunfire. The first FBI agents on the scene listened to frantic 911 calls between a deputy sheriff and one of the Davidians. Wayne. Just remain calm. We're going to get it worked out, okay? The bloodiest and most controversial clash between U.S. law enforcement agents and American citizens was just beginning. The remaining 62 adults and 21 children refused to leave the Mount Carmel compound, and now the standoff with the government would begin. Before it was all over, 51 days would pass. David Koresh and his followers holed up in the compound, surrounded by hundreds of federal agents from the ATF and FBI, and a barrage of news media outlets would stand off for 51 days. At first, the Davidians had telephone contact with local news media, and Koresh gave phone interviews. Eventually, the FBI would cut Davidian communication to the outside world, 
and set up can set up communication between the FBI negotiators and the Branch Davidians. Communication would only occur between Koresh and a select few of his followers and a group of 25 FBI negotiators, including head FBI negotiator Gary Nestor. The FBI negotiators would eventually secure the release of 44 people during the standoff. At one point, Koresh and FBI agents came to an agreement for Koresh to surrender and for all the remaining Branch Davidians to come out peacefully. To secure this deal, the FBI had to agree to broadcast a tape of Koresh to a national radio audience. Here is a recording of that tape played on Dallas radio station KRLD. The voice you hear, KRLD. I, David Koresh, agree upon the broadcasting of this tape to come out peacefully with all the people immediately. But even as negotiators tried to reason with Koresh and secure a peaceful outcome, the FBI commanders continued to ratchet up the pressure. The FBI commanders continued to ratchet up the pressure on the Davidians. Besides cutting the phone lines, the FBI cut off power to the compound and began moving their tanks closer to the complex. Eventually, negotiations stalled between the... Now, Channel 13 Eyewitness News tonight. And good evening, friends. Right now, we just don't know. Despite his pledge to surrender over seven hours ago, still no break reported tonight outside of Waco. Cult leader David Koresh apparently remains holed up in his heavily armed fortress, and we assume that negotiations with law officers continue. Our reporter Alan Himberger is there covering any and all developments, and he joins us now live. Alan, what do we know is the latest? Well, I'll tell you what, Dave, what we know is that it's a dark outside that compound and that there is no official word as to what is going on inside. Now, about 90 minutes ago, uh, a Dallas radio station, KRLD, declared that the siege was over, and they did that because of the visual that they were seeing, streams of cars coming out from near that compound. However, they have backed off that idea that the siege was over, and in fact, the siege appears to be headed towards day four. Shortly after that broadcast, on April 19, 1993, FBI commanders and the Attorney General of the United States, Janet Reno, gave the go-ahead to begin moving their tanks closer to the complex and to shoot tear gas inside the Branch Davidian compound to force the Davidians out. Amid the chaos, a fire erupted. The FBI blamed the Branch Davidians for starting the fire. The surviving Branch Davidians say the FBI caused the fire. The end result was that Koresh and his and 75 of his followers, including all of his remaining children, were found dead after the blaze. Many of the deceased had fatal gunshot wounds to either their head, chest, or face, authorities said. Koresh had a gunshot wound in the middle of his forehead. Among those killed in the chest and two other minors who suffered fatal blows to the head, according to the FBI. David Thibodeau, David Thibodeau, one of only nine Branch Davidian members to survive the fire, told Time Magazine in a 2018 interview that he believes the dead Branch Davidians were shot by FBI. The FBI claims no law enforcement officers had fired a single bullet since the initial shootout.
Thibodeau also said that it is likely that some of the branch Davidians may have shot each other to prevent a slower, more painful death in the fire. Who started the fire? That is still unclear. The Justice Department's lengthy report on the events at Waco and the 51-day standoff at the Branch Davidian compound uh, that ended in, ended in fire was filed on October 1993, and it concluded that the fire was deliberately set by persons inside the compound and not started by the FBI's tear gas insertion operations. But on December 28th of 2000, a report was submitted by the 106th U.S. Congress backed by the U.S. House Committee on Government Reform that stated the decision to end the standoff on April 19, 1993 was premature, wrong, and highly irresponsible, and that the possibility of a negotiated end should have been further pursued. As for my thoughts on the 1993 Waco siege, they have changed over the years. When I first heard about the FBI raid on the Branch Davidians, and it was actually the ATFBI took over after ATF agents were uh, killed, uh, I was greatly influenced by the news. Um, I had heard, I'd been listening to it um, on um, Dallas radio station KRLD. I watched it on, on TV. Uh, and I had you know, heard the reports that Koresh was a cult leader, that he was a child molester, he was a bigamist, and he was set on getting his group to follow in his apocalyptic end. I remember uh, watching an episode of Oprah that had uh, some of Koresh's former wives, and, and they were talking about, um, you know, how Koresh slept with all the women in, in the compound. I also remember hearing Attorney General Janet Reno testify before Congress as to why it was necessary, and this happened after uh, the uh, final fire, but she testified, you know, why it was necessary for the FBI to uh, using tanks and tear gas. All right, I would like now if the Attorney General would stand to be sworn in, please. Would you raise your right hand? Do you swear or affirm that the testimony you're about to give should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Clearly, a dangerous situation was becoming more dangerous, especially for the children. We had received allegations that Koresh had sexually abused the children in the past, including Carrie Jewell when she was just 10 years old. We had also received allegations that Koresh had physically abused the children. For example, a former Davidian alleged that Koresh had once spanked a young child for 40 minutes so hard that her bottom was bleeding. The child was only eight months old. That's all the situation. Everyone involved in the events of April the 19th made their best judgments based on all the information we had. This was the hardest decision I have ever had to make, probably one of the hardest decisions that anybody could have to make. It will live with me for the rest of my life. I'm accountable for it, and I'm happy to answer your questions. Um, and then I read Stalling for Time by the FBI negotiator, Gary Nessner. I also read David Thibodeau's book um, called Waco, A Survivor's Story, and countless other news articles uh, preparing for this podcast. And after examining all the evidence, my opinions of what happened at Waco have changed a little. 
at first I thought the government was 100% right that letting a, a, you know, a cult leader keep all these people in this compound for 51 days was atrocious and we needed to do something. But then I, I kind of changed my mind. Um, in an interview with Megyn Kelly on the Today Show back in 2018, David Thibodeau, uh, who survived the Waco ordeal uh, and was a Branch Davidian, talks about what it was like being in that compound for 51 days. Describe what the people were like and what those t that time period was like. The, the, the 51 day yeah. time period? Well, that was uh, very much chaotic. It was, I, you know, a, a different lifestyle than, than what we had been used to. Kind of two MREs a day, meals ready to eat. And uh, the water was was uh, rationed as well. Um, there was a lot of it was it was an exciting, obviously an exciting time. But watching daily the press conferences, there would always be the FBI was in control totally of the information that the world got. Mm -hmm. And so when you're not able to kind of respond to things on a daily basis that people are saying about you, it becomes very frustrating especially the communication breakdown uh, between David Koresh, Steve Schneider, and, and the FBI negotiators. His there. lieutenant, Steve Schneider. Also um, on the show that day was Gary Nessner, the FBI lead negotiator. And he also spoke to Kelly um, in 2018 about his difference of opinion with FBI commanders in charge uh, and how they were handling that 51-day standoff play that here. And then you were kind of removed from the picture because you had a difference of opinion on how it should go? Yeah, I mean, in addition to the conflict inside the compound, as, as David Thibodeau here just, just referred, there was conflict within the FBI. There was uh, the negotiation team that wanted to basically engage in dialogue and convince them to come out to share with the world what they thought about things. And there was a part of the FBI that wanted to force them out to tighten the noose, as it were, to exert increasing amounts of pressure. And those two things were in, in contrast and contradiction and created a lot of problems for us. So to kind of summarize, was David Koresh guilty of a crime and did he deserve to be arrested? I believe he was guilty uh, of a crime and he should have been arrested. Should the FBI uh, or, or should the ATF have executed that warrant on April 19, 1993? and subsequently entered the compound 51 days later and used tear gas uh, on the Branch Davidians? I don't think so. I, I don't think they should have. I think they could have probably gotten Koresh some other way. Uh, certainly Koresh uh, spoke with uh, the ATF agents that were living in the house across from him. You know, they could have nabbed him then. They could have waited till he came out. Um, they knew, the ATF knew there were women and children in that compound. I just can't understand women and children in that compound. I just can't understand uh, what happened uh, to cause the fire. I can't understand why the ATF found it necessary to go in guns a-blazing. Um, you know, what was the hurry? There were children in that compound. Surely a more humane plan could have been hatched by the government to save those children. So today, um, many in Waco may not even remember or know the story of David Koresh, the Branch Davidians, and the FBI siege on the Branch Davidian compound that was just outside of their town.
but one law um, officer does remember, and he is the current McLennan County Sheriff, Parnell McNamara. And here he is reflecting on the lessons law enforcement learned from that Waco raid. Play that tape. Well, the main lesson I think that all of law enforcement learned is to never underestimate a religious cult. I still find it hard to believe that some of that happened. Here in Waco, my hometown, did the government make mistakes? Sure, they did. And uh, I think anybody will admit that. I don't think you would approach another compound in the same way that was done that day. I don't think anybody really realized the resolve of those people to stand by Koresh to the very end. Uh, it was just, uh, it was mind boggling that they did because I really thought they would come out. So after reading about the events that took place at Waco, um, you know, you have to wonder, has the federal law enforcement changed? Commanders and agents of the FBI and ATF do receive more training in hostage and mass shooting operations today than ever before. Uh, there is more collaboration between agencies and training and equipment that agents have access to has greatly improved since 1993. That the FBI has made significant changes after Waco uh, to improve communication and cohesion among uh, different elements of the organization, particularly involved in critical incidents like the Waco siege. Um, there's no doubt they have created a, um, a, new, a new group. It's called the Critical um, Incident Response Group and uh, to come to peaceful solutions. So as far as I can say, there have been some lessons learned from Waco. Uh, I can only hope that this is true and that um, there's better management, better command structure, and with the implementation of the critical incident response group, tragedies like the one in Waco, Texas, that happened in 1993 will not happen again. I do think that there will be more religious leaders, there will be more cult leaders, there will be people that will challenge uh, authority, uh, such as what happened with David Koresh and his followers. Um, but I do have some faith that we have made some changes in law enforcement that will uh, hopefully uh, not allow tragedies like this to occur uh, in the future. So with that, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Texas Talking. Join us again in two weeks for more stories and more stories, interviews, and legends from Texas. I want to thank you so much for joining me. You can find my show notes from this episode, a transcript, and also how to become a Patreon at my website, texastalkin.com. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Patreon, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Follow Texas Talking on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and subscribe to our Texas Talking YouTube channel as well. So thanks for listening. So thanks for listening. Until next time. 